Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. It's my uh, pleasure to welcome you this evening to the first in a series of five events inspired by a new book and installation called Mavericks, Breaking the Mould of British Architecture. And it's really a celebration of those figures from the history of British architecture who in various ways have defied convention, often shunned the mainstream and charted their own distinct course. Now the book and installation focus on 12 such mavericks from the 16th century to the present. Architects as diverse as Vambra, Soane, Mackintosh, Holden, Sterling and Cedric Price. But it's hardly meant as a definitive list. Everyone, I hope, will have their own ideas about who should be on it, who are their favourite mavericks. But the intention of bringing together such a list is to try to spur debates about the role of innovative and unorthodox thinking in architecture. And the task of this evening is really to take a step back in some ways and to ask, does architecture actually need mavericks? So providing some answers, I hope, will be our panel uh, to my left. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with, with lots of them, so I won't give long formal introductions, but I'm still going to rely on their Twitter profile uh, biographies. Um, so first, uh, in no particular order, we have Maria Smith, who claims I put out a fire once uh, and directs us to uh, Interrobang for work adventures. And that's her new dis trans sorry, transdisciplinary <laughs> architecture and engineering practice she founded last year. Before that, she was director of Studio Weave and is also one of the organisers of the uh, Iconoclastic, is that the best word to describe it? Turncoats series of events. And she also asked me to mention she's currently studying for a degree in structural engineering. Uh, next, we have uh, Catherine Sesser, uh, whose Twitter profile uh, notes that she is an architectural writer, critic and bon viveurs. Used to be big in pictures, ex-editrix of the Architectural Review. <laughs> I'm also delighted to have two-thirds of the former directors of the Practice Fat on the panel. The more so because they, uh, I think, very graciously allowed me to include Fat amongst the 12 Mavericks in the book in installation, so I very much look forward to hearing their thoughts on that. Um, Charles Holland, to my immediate left, is now architect at Ordinary Architecture, teacher at the Royal College of Arts, writer at Icon, RBA Journal and others. Uh, Sean is not on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, but I'm happy to report that he's Professor of Architecture at the University of Westminster and is a freelance artist and architect. So before we begin the discussion part of the evening about whether architecture needs Mavericks, I thought we would, uh, or I would, kick things off by offering a few thoughts on what exactly a maverick architect might be and what marks out a maverick from their peers. Now, by definition, I think no two mavericks can be the same, but there are, I would say, a number of ways that architects can be maverick. So the first, and I think probably the most obvious, is by designing in a way that disregards convention, by embracing the new to create buildings that stand apart from others being created around the same time. Now, there are 
obviously many architects who, are, uh, who would claim to have been at the leading edge of architectural design, if we actually accept such thing might exist, uh, but there are, I reckon, few who could realistically claim to have occupied that position consistently over their careers. What was once innovative can quickly become the accepted norm. Uh, but there are some architects who've managed never to become normalised and who appear uh, as mavericks in the book. Architects like John Vanbrugh, who in works like Castle Howard or the darkly brooding Seaton Delaval on the Northumberland coast, had the ability to create buildings that stand almost as poetry in stone. Architects like John Soane, creative spaces that maintain the capacity to, to surprise and delight, even if we think we know them well. Or architects like Mackintosh, who in his own idiosyncratic way was able to conjure buildings that almost speak through their very materials to those who inhabit or use them. So that's the first way. The second way, and an architect might be a maverick, is in their relationship to the architectural profession or to the discipline of architecture. Of these, there's probably uh, no more important figure, at least in the 20th century, than Cedric Price, the self-proclaimed anti-architect who sought to rethink the very basis on which architectural uh, form is both conceived and used. For Price, a building was only the answer after an intense process of research. When the need for a building no longer existed, he argued it should be demolished. And uh, he put his money where his mouth is. He was a paid-up member of the National Federation of Demolition Contractors and actually argued for the demolition of his interaction centre in Kentish Town when it was uh, apparently up for listing. Uh, another area where an architect might mark themselves as maverick is in taste and by embracing or even celebrating what's currently unfashionable or shunned by the architectural mainstream. This could be in aesthetics, but also, I think, in ideas. So the architect, uh, Harry Stewart Goodhart Rendell, uh, perhaps little-known figure, can be considered a maverick for his passionate defence and promotion of Victorian architecture, both before and after the Second World War, um, at a time when, for many observers, its <coughs> ornament and supposed excess was really just an aberration in architectural history. And finally, I think we have to note that mavericks are always and necessarily the exception. It's impossible for everyone to be a maverick and uh, probably not desirable either. Uh, architecture isn't a discipline that uh, is easy for mavericks to operate in and we'll no doubt uh, explore some of the reasons why that is shortly. So just to summarise, I think for an architect to be a maverick, it takes really a special character, someone with confidence, conviction, and I think above all, abundant self-belief. And I think it's this that really sets them apart. That's the preamble. And now we turn to our panelists. Charles, you go first. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I guess the first thing to say is a difficult thing to talk about because I guess one, you know, one should never describe oneself as a maverick. One is <laughs> describing oneself as radical or subversive. Um, it seems about unseemly. Um, uh, and also, I suppose, because uh, the title Maverick is a kind of tricky one, because whilst it confers a certain sort of level of status, it, of course, also confers a slight marginalisation, um, that you're somehow outside of the establishment at the same time. 
um, which is where Moore said in his uh, preview of the Mavericks exhibition uh, in the Observer, um, for us, for Fat, who were dogged for many years with the title Pranksters, that maybe Mavericks is a sort of grown-up version of Prankster, or maybe what happens when Pranksters die. Um, because um, this is an exhibition that um, Zaha aside, everyone in it has to be dead. Um, and in a way, Fat, of course, are dead too, because we um, split several years ago. So there's a sort of, I guess there's a kind of implied sense that you... Um, yeah, you've kind of moved on to a sort of status beyond um, being a kind of current or, or working architect. Um, I guess I want to, yeah, I asked, actually asked you about whether there's a private view. And I, when I was writing that email, I kind of realised, of course, there probably isn't anyone because there's no one to come to it. <laughs> and really only sort of expression Find some people, everybody yeah. in it is um, unable to come. Um, <laughs> So I get, but I did want to kind of think if if that are maverick or were maverick in some way, like what aspect of their work could um, kind of confer that title or make people think about it like that? Um, and I suppose thinking back about the sort of uh, the the sort of process of that, the time that we're in it, there was a definite sense, I think, at the beginning certainly of trying to uh, of reacting to a kind of architectural culture that existed. Um, and having a sort of a, a definite decision to remove ourselves perhaps from that mainstream. And I can kind of, if I think about the Fat Library, it's quite interesting because at the beginning of our sort of career, the Fat Library was probably quite orthodox in some ways. And you'd find Rem Courthouse and uh, Frank Gehry and Bernard Schumi in it. And about 10 minutes later, 10 years later, <laughs> you would find, 10 minutes later, 10 years later, you would find um, uh, a copy of James Fighting Ships several remaindered AD classics on postmodernism, um, and uh, Bannister Fletcher's History of Architecture. Don't forget so, fashion for the disabled. <laughs> and of course the ever important fashion for the disabled. So th there was, and, and of course the Deep Purple records that um, Aaron refers to in the text of the book. So there was, I think, a definite attempt to sort of, yeah, remove ourselves from what seemed like a kind of accepted canon of work and an accepted sort of air, set of interests and to look deliberately <coughs> at things that other architects weren't. And one of the things, of course, most um, notably that we looked at was postmodernism, which was uh, our, our sort of attitude to that, in a way, is quite schizophrenic, I think. Because on one level, we were interested in it, I think, because it was toxic, unpleasant, everyone hated it. Um, it was something to be brushed under the carpet of recent architectural history. We could all got on to like, better, more tasteful things. Um, and so we wanted to employ it in a way for its sort of, I guess, for one of better terms, shock value. Um, but there was also a genuine interest in what postmodern architecture, and certainly in its kind of early period, was about, and that it opened up really important conversations um, about taste, as Owen suggests, about um, the role and the sort of politics of taste, of class, of identity, and a kind of what seemed to us a very useful critique of modernism, which may have descended into a fairly sort of knee-jerk critique, but at the beginning a very necessary one. So our attitude to it was only partly to sort of be provocative or difficult, but also finding some genuine um, interest. It's quite hard for, for me personally to separate out at what point I actually genuinely started to like the buildings of Stanley Tigerman, or at what point we were just trying <laughs> to see what would happen if you said you liked the buildings of Stanley Tigerman, um, and whether you'd be expunged from architectural culture as a result. 
So we're sort of interested, and I think, in a sort of visual culture of architecture and playing with that visual culture and the kind of connotations it had, rather than trying to find a kind of authentic voice um, or uh, an interest in, you know, a modernist interest in the zeitgeist. It was a conscious attempt to sort of work with the sort of stylistic mannerisms and history of architecture. Um, and the visual culture of it, and that's a really interesting thing. I, I think that actually, strangely, within the world of architecture, talking about visual culture is extremely difficult. <laughs> and I think it's, it's a very actually uncomfortable subject, in a way, for architects to talk about what their buildings look like and why they look like that. I think it's kind of fascinating. It seems really... Um, I mean, I made this comment the other day. There was an architectural review special about ornament, and in the editorial, there was a kind of, this is very interesting, but unfortunately, we're stuck back talking about what buildings look like. <laughs> and I was like, what's wrong with that? That seems like a very profound thing to be discussing. But there's a sense that the visual is a, is, is a kind of, you know, it's a facade or it's a sort of shallow thing and other more important meanings lie behind it. So the last thing I kind of wanted to say, really, was about uh, that interest in perhaps difficult the difficult things about visual culture. And I remember a friend of mine going to Venice in the Biennale in 2012 and seeing Fats installation in the Museum of Copying and saying to me very honestly, um, I didn't like it at all, but I was really glad it was there because it was the most difficult thing to look at in the whole of the Biennale. It, it, I didn't like it, but it was compellingly tricky and difficult. And it asked sorts of questions about why I might not like it. And I think that's really interesting. And you might say, as a final comment, why is visual difficulty important? Is it just a kind of, you know, rarefied aesthetic um, provocation? And I, I don't think it is, because for us, or for me, um, it, it is a way of expressing the kind of complexities of the world. And the houses we did in Islington Square, for instance, um, in Manchester a few years back were not an attempt to reconcile the sort of cultural differences between the client, the users, the brief, uh, various different demands. They were an attempt to express those differences. And I think for us, not reconciling them, having a sort of difficult end visually, was a really important way to express things that we didn't want to cover over. Thank you. So that I don't repeat really what Charles has said, uh, I've decided to take a leaf out of Jeremy Corbyn's uh, book in terms of his attitude to question time with the Prime Minister. And therefore, instead of just giving a spiel, I've uh, admittedly without their permission uh, invited members of the public to comment on the practice of FAT. And... Um, so most of these things are called from articles that were published on uh, internet um, magazines, such as Design and others, Building Design, and they are below-the-line responses to the publication of those projects. So I'm just going to read them out. Um, on the House for Essex, which graces the front cover of the Mavericks catalogue, Thomas Jones writes, <laughs> It's the rape of the Essex countryside. <laughs> Jack X offers, I really disliked this before I saw the pictures, 
Now I can't help but feel the grotesque charm of the place. It's different, but not as bad as some <laughs> of the other fat stuff. <laughs> One writes, very simply, ugliest house ever. Concerned citizen offers, one can only hope for a sinkhole under the house. <laughs> From Kay we get, good God, could this have been any uglier? So just to change tack a little bit, I'm moving on to a building called uh, Community in a Cube, which was built in an apartment building built in Middlesbrough, which is also in the book. From the appropriately named Ah, this is quite possibly the ugliest thing I have ever seen. Ever. <laughs> Ross, the only suitable use of this structure would be a prison that focuses on art therapy. <laughs> well, thank you for that, Ross. That's a very interesting suggestion, if you happen to be here. Gemma. <laughs> How great would be if he was here? Yeah. Everybody from this. <laughs> Gemma, our dear God, that is just vile. The spaces created are very desirable, but the overall aesthetic, I'm lost for words. JC, who could indeed be Jeremy Corbyn, we don't know. Or Jesus Christ. Or Jesus Christ. <laughs> this will be the clear winner of next year's Carbuncle Cup. Sebastian, oh my God, my eyes hurt. <laughs> this project is one of the worst things I have ever seen in my life. <laughs> Rob T, the most vomit-inducing design seen since the Fiat Multiplar, whatever that is. On a little um, piece of furniture we designed called Soft Hercules, which was a, a foam cast of Hercules' head that you sat, you sat on the face of it. <laughs> Ali wrote, I'm so sick of the shit. <laughs> <laughs> Up to his neck, uh, in response to Rowan Moore's review of this exhibition in The Observer a couple of weeks ago, the house for Essex is, in capitals, pants. <laughs> From Andrew Morris on the occasion of my appointment as Professor of Architecture at the University of Westminster, <laughs> If my son were an architect, I would not want him to be taught by Sean Griffiths. <laughs> Architectural education doesn't come cheap and you have to be careful to put your boy or girl on a pathway that's going to actually teach them about what's current, not about third-rate POMO nostalgia. From Andrew Morris, again, on an article I wrote about the low spa, uh, the Adolf low spa in Vienna in building design. Yeah, well, Griffiths, <laughs> you will never be anywhere near remotely as good as Los was. You can sit in his bar until you're blue in the face. <laughs> From QA, on the occasion of FAT announcing um, the end of its practice, slightly more... Um, Positive. Sad news, actually. Architecture needs more intelligent mould breakers 
as opposed to flashy parametric shape makers. Replied to by one Andrew Morris. <laughs> or, or, or old hat pomo fun architecture, which is what fat did. The disappearance of fat is good news for British architecture. Comparing fat with Lutyens or Sterling is just laughable. Well, Andrew Morris, if you are in the audience, I've got some news for you. We are in an exhibition at the Royal Academy. <laughs> the Royal fucking Academy. And in that exhibition is one James Sterling. And Lutyens didn't even make the cut. <laughs> My claim for Fat's innovation is that we were the first architects of the internet age, and I, I'm happy to elaborate on that later in the evening. I haven't got time now. As for the word maverick itself, I think I actually prefer prankster. <laughs> it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of more honest. I mean, as Charles was referring, a maverick's that sort of, well, there's English words, it's, slightly dis, it's sort of dissing you, and, but, but in a polite way. At the, at the same time. And then somebody once also described as, as the court jesters of architecture, which I'm also quite happy with, actually, uh, because any of you who have read Shakespeare knows that the fool is always the sanest one on the stage. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Uh, Catherine? Um, I don't know if anyone remembers Jean Rook. She was a self-styled first lady of Fleet Street and she worked as an op-ed columnist in the 1970s. She was the inspiration for privatised Glenda Slag. Um, Mavericks, she would say, ain't you sick to death of them? Um, we're going to hear quite a lot tonight uh, about the joys of being a maverick, of how clever and creative they are of how crucial they are to the trajectory of culture generally and architecture in particular. Dragging us, ladies and gentlemen, the dull, common herd into sunny uplands and pastures new. Always moving things on, challenging the status quo, flicking two fingers up at the establishment. They are the impetus and engine of human progress. We'd still be living in caves and picking mammoth gristle out of our teeth if it wasn't for Leonardo da Vinci, Charles Darwin and Steve Jobs. We'd be unaware of a tube station, of all things, could be art, thanks to the vision of Charles Holden, one of the maverick architects featured in the RA show. Our funny bones would remain untitillated by the feather duster of Fat's playful provocations. Our souls would be unmoved by the heartening parable of Maria Smith's spunk. She is going to talk about spunk. I have it on very good authority. <laughs> Today's mavericks go by many names. Out-of-the-box thinkers, Black swans, outliers. They write motivational self-help books to help you, stuck in your boring, non-maverick life, to think like a maverick and become a maverick. They are, it is fair to say, a bit of a cult. There are maverick detectives, maverick pop stars, maverick businessmen, <coughs> maverick florists, maverick chefs, and, as we have seen, maverick architects. And we continue to be beguiled by them as low stars in time and space impelling us non-mere maverick mortals on to self-improvement, to new ways of seeing and being. 
And of course, all of that is well and good. Except two words, ladies and gentlemen, two words. Sarah Palin. <laughs> Sarah Palin, as you might recall, was the disastrous choice of running mate to John McCain, the Republican candidate at the last US presidential election. Palin was, to all intents and purposes, a self-styled, dyed-in-the-wool maverick. But perhaps a maverick more in the ori original American sense of the word, a wayward steer that has wandered off from the herd and then has been laboriously pursued and recaptured. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're a cowboy, a maverick is a colossal pain in the arse. And Palin certainly lived up to this. Firing all cylinders, offering weird, unscripted pronouncements in a generally bonkers but crucially maverick demeanour. At times, she appeared high on her own maverickdom, memorably <laughs> describing herself as, I'm a maverick and a hockey mum, which is a bit <laughs> like a pit bull with lipstick. So just hold that frankly unpalatable thought. Palin has now re-emerged from a failed career as a reality TV star to offer her maverick support to, appropriately, another maverick, Donald Trump, <laughs> who is possibly the ultimate wayward steer, and who seems hell-bent on impaling American politics and society on his poisonous horns. So playing devil's advocate for the purposes of this debate, I would say, beware mavericks. They might not necessarily know best. They might not even be very nice. And though they sweep you along in the aura of self-proclaimed genius, we know with such highly driven individuals, there is always a dark side, manifesting an unpalatable behavior and dangerous obsession. For instance, Charles Rennie McIntosh was a notorious drunk. Jim Sterling was a philanderer. Zaha Hadid has been known to throw things at her staff, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine that a dinner party with Charles, Jim and Zaha would be either mind-blowingly brilliant or make you want to quite literally blow your own brains out. You'd certainly need a few drinks to get through it. But what obviously unites our dinner party guests from hell is that they had a vision of how architecture might be taken by the scruff of the neck and radically reconceptualised for their respective eras. They were and are genuine visionaries. But visionaries <coughs> sounds a bit fuddy and biblical. And as we know, the RA is trying to get away from all that, so Mavericks is probably more a bit down and dirty and down with the kids. So there is a serious point to be made in that however much we cherish and revere our trailblazing maverick architects, <coughs> they're only responsible for a fraction of global architectural output. There's a famous and much quoted statistic that goes something like, only half the buildings in the world involve an architect, and 95% of those are your jobbing, run-of-the-mill guy or girl in their one-person practice, impotently fantasizing about being Jim Sterling or Zaha Hadid, or indeed being Charles or Sean or Maria. So the maverick visionary quotient is actually very, very <coughs> small. It's the elusive seam of gold in the vast coal mine of architecture, but its influence is disproportionately high. And to invoke another radical statistic, in Britain in the 1950s, something like around three quarters of architects were employed in the public sector, diligently churning out housing, libraries, hospitals, schools, swimming pools, and infrastructure for local councils. Back then, architecture was a genuinely social art, practiced by a largely unsung body of anonymous professionals who, though they might have quietly purred the Corbusier's oeuvre complet of an evening, 
were at the desk at 9am the following day. Day in, day out. But as we know, mavericks are very good at hogging the limelight. And these days have got much better at it, assisted by the oleaginous machinery of PR and the disseminatory capabilities of the internet. And yes, as a former editor of a leading architecture magazine, the Architectural Review, I freely confess to be implicit in this, vigorously fanning the flames of maverickdom to lure in subscribers and can attest to the Faustian pact that this involves. But actually, when you can stop to consider the critical importance of architecture, how the built environment is shaped and used, how it reflects society and culture, which is of massive concern to us all, you do really find yourself thinking. The experiential, experimental, haute couture architecture of Mavericks is all very well, but my local library is closing down, my hospital is under the cosh, and I will never be able to afford a house, let alone think of commissioning an architect to design me one. So perhaps what architecture really needs is less haute couture, less Mavericks, delightful though they all are, Instead, it needs to get the hell down from its self-indulgent, 3D-printed, parametric ivory tower and rediscover a better kind of ordinary. So having dropped a gnat in that particular yogurt, I think I'm done. Thank you. <laughs> Catherine, thank you. So, Maria, over to you. Hello. My name is Maria. I like a drink. <laughs> I've never diligently churned anything. In my library is a book called Why Cats Paint, and it's quite literally about cats that paint. <laughs> and it's really my main source of inspiration. Um, previous things that have been written below the internet belt line uh, about my work include, oh my god, I just threw up a little bit. <laughs> And uh, my all-time favourite, which is in the Daily Mail, by the way, is uh, this will give you AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I'm a mercenary maverick. Like many my age, my generation, I suffer from the conceit that the world that I live in, the world we live in, is just not conducive to extraordinary creativity in the way that it was in the vaguely defined times of olden days. So. Um, with limited understanding. I'm nostalgic for a time when the line between being accepted and not being accepted by the orthodoxy was clearly mistaken. In this world, I would have been on the outside and I would have relished in my indignance at my exclusion. Perhaps I would have been on the outside because I was ahead of my time or had too little reverence for power or because I just had such raw, threatening genius Perhaps I would have been a fish out of water, taken out by sort of war or religion or um, some other sort of bohemian circumstance and thrust into a land of limited opportunity that was intent on willfully misunderstanding me. Perhaps I would have had some as yet unknown condition or disease that would have made me generatively, fabulously creative. Whatever the details, in these olden days, I would have been a maverick. I would have been maverick by virtue of being rejected from the orthodoxy by conservative morons incapable of understanding my exquisite offering. And like many, I suffer from the conceit that I don't live in this world. I don't live in a world where ideology or some other external force creates a tight corral around a dull few. I have to believe that it's just not possible for me and my talent to thrust ourselves into the establishment with pure, say it with me, 
spunk. <laughs> in my ego-addled brain, it takes much more than bursting through the salon doors. Yeah, saloon doors. You get that's nice. And expunging, pungent pugnations. This is impractical, because it's not a conservative agenda that keeps me, that keeps this sphincter contracted. <laughs> but instead pragmatics like money and resource and sympathetic market conditions. So mere ideas are impotent. The validity of my ideas is irrelevant. Oh, thank fuck, that's such a weight off. So this nonsense argument, and others like me, to believe that it is impossible to be a true maverick in this day and age. The only thing we can be is reactionary. True mavericks don't define themselves in opposition to others. They define themselves by what they are. And because they offer an alternative, onlookers may describe them as not X or as in opposition to Y, but they don't do that. They can't cast themselves in that way because that would be impossible. There are too many options for being other. Other is infinitely large minus one tiny small little thing. But the silly, lazy, wannabe mavericks um, tried to do just this. In the absence of this old-fashioned rejection that we can't access, we try to define ourselves by, uh, ourselves by what we oppose. And, of course, we find that in our stupid discipline, where the opposite of black is every colour of the rainbow, we are a weak facsimile of rebellion. But, while becoming a maverick of old may be impossible, the sweet seduction of the special is just as strong, and moreover, the salon doors are held open, the doorman bows, the opportunities present themselves like horny baboons. Something that looks like maverick is not only reject, is not only not rejected, but it is longed for, encouraged even. This is understandable given the overabundance of mediocrity that makes up the tepid used bathwater of architecture practice. But a maverick who's filling a job vacancy for a maverick is not a true maverick. Well, fine. I mean, it's still better to be a maverick for hire, this mercenary maverick, than the alternative. I'm just imagine. Imagine what Kath's talking about. Imagine the despair, the denigration, the dirtiness of just getting on with it, of building buildings, earning a living. Yuck. I have much loftier aspirations. I'm not driven by the carrot of short-term cash, but by the beautiful journey over a rainbow to the pot of gold at the end. So what's a maverick caught out of time to do? Rejects clubs being not what they were, the reactionaries too stupid to realise that they're setting themselves up for a fall. That's not what I want, but I want that pot of gold. Mavericks get that gold by right, I deserve. The long, arduous, elevated journey and the gold. How deliciously perverse. How it out-mavericks the mavericks to become a maverick for gold to become a mercenary maverick. So, you ask, how does one become a mercenary maverick? To do this, I may, must create the illusion of extraordinary otherness, and in the absence of something genuinely new, I should borrow from elsewhere. I should go multidisciplinary, interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary, no, anti-disciplinary. I should be an artist working as an architect. I should be an architect, practicing like an artist. I should be an anthropologist, an economist, a tech startup incubator. I should be a structural engineer. Yes. Crossing or even transcending disciplines is an ideal way to become something that looks like maverick and the perfect get out for mavericks out of time like me.
Unlike the rejects, who are forced to somehow create more from the same old restricted ingredients, or the reactionaries, who find themselves trying to create new from an even smaller pantry of ingredients, we transdisciplinary mavericks have broadened our knowledge base. We bring things to the party. And yeah, you can argue that we went through the kitchen door and snuck a platter of cocktail sausages out and then went back round the front and then sort of emerged triumphantly, magnanimously brandishing our steels. But who cares? What is important is that I get to be a maverick and the party is thrilled to have me. Thank you very much. So now is the uh, discussion. I was quite interested. It sort of it, this came up through a lot of the um, opening statements. Was what the non-maverick part of the architectural mm. profession, the ninety-nine point nine percent of architects, think of mavericks. Sean, I suppose, captured something of that. Although you know the. Below the line comments on any web page is a sort of hotbed of insanity and mm. that sort of thing, isn't I've it? I've actually wrote all those comments myself. Twenty-five pseudonyms that you possess. Yeah. But did, but did you were you conscious of, of what the rest of the architectural profession felt of, of what you were doing and, and the attention you were getting? For oh it? yes, absolutely. I mean. If you, ask, if you ask me what I miss most about fat, and we, we stop for lots of good reasons, um, but what, what I miss is those below-the-line comments. They, they were a source of great pleasure, entertainment and joy for me. <laughs> life-affirming. <laughs> and they were life-affirming because it was like... I mean, it wasn't aimed at sort of ordinary ar ar architects as such. Um, I mean, I... I I have no problem whatsoever in straightforward architecture. Um, it's just that you know we chose not to do that. But um, there was certain there's certain conceit that architects have. There's certain delusions that they have. Like for example, that they um, they are doing things for people. They think they're doing things. It's just because they say they're doing it for the community doesn't mean they're actually doing it for the community. Most architects, I think, are actually quite interested in kind of quite narrow architectural things. And, um, you know, there were things like uh, an association between a certain kind of aesthetic, which was um, given a, a sort of moral standing as, you know, a certain kind of modernist aesthetic was given a, a moral standing that was, I, I, you know, I just thought completely false. So part of what we were trying to do was to expose that a little bit and we did it by making these buildings um, knowing that people would write that stuff and it was really you know what why we enjoyed it was because it was totally what we expected them to do and they just fell completely into the trap and uh, you know we used, to, we used to do things so this, this one will get them <laughs> pissed this will piss them off this one but I mean it, but it was, it was, you know, um, I use the word prankster in a more positive sense than perhaps Charles thought, thought about it. But there was an element, there was definitely an element of that, of, you know, of, not, of it not taking it. We were very serious about not being too serious. And architects tend to be very, very, very serious. So they got upset by it. 
Would and you? they were meant to. <laughs> Do you want to add anything, Tasha? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think in my sort of intro, I think there's a sort of, like, speaking honestly, I think there's this, like, schizophrenic quality to that. And was it a definite attempt to, like, and I can remember very clearly kind of going, provoking each other in the sense of, like, OK, now you're really going to hate this one, and then getting this thing out. So there's definitely a, a deliberate attempt and a sort of enjoyment of the reaction that that provoked, and, and that enjoyment is probably like both serious, like this is a, an extremely sort of interesting and artistically sort of valuable contribution in some way to sort of find stuff that is this difficult. <laughs> um, but also genuine interest and love of the material too. And I'm always a little bit confused as to which one led the other. And I think, it, for me, it wasn't simply about provoking reaction, it was a sort of genuine emerging enthusiasm and interest in certain things so like being in this exhibition um is you know i i although it's some um, incredibly well we're in it i suppose so one could be pretty kind of arrogant about that and say <laughs> that there's architects in there that are just incredibly um enthusiastic and adore and their work i think has similar aspects of you know compositional or visual or or um uh kind of um artistic intent that you, know, you look at Sterling's work and it's incredibly <laughs> difficult to reconcile what he's doing a lot of the time. And for me, it gets more interesting. Everyone goes about Sterling the same thing. They go, oh, well, he was great until he discovered postmodernism. You go, actually, he was, one, he was always a postmodernist. All he ever did was kind of mix up and kind of collage and, and, and sample a kind of history of architecture. He just moved the sources on. And secondly, actually, they get more interesting the more people find them difficult. <laughs> Um, but I think that, yeah, I get back to the point, I guess there's a kind of slightly schizophrenic um, uh, impulse there. Uh, and um, those below-the-line comments are both life-affirming and, of course, just endlessly sort of demoralising in equal <laughs> measure. Because kind of the weird thing, you kind of go, you're going to hate this, and everyone goes, oh, I don't like that. And you go, <laughs> you know, of course you don't, because we, we already knew that. But Did you think what you were doing had had an effect beyond provoking people? Do you think that you yeah. opened architectural culture up a little bit more? I, I genuinely think we did. I mean, I think yeah, Charles, right, of course, it was completely schizophrenic, although he's a much more sensitive soul than I am, so I was never upset by these, uh, these, these comments. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think there are certain mainstream architects who are very highly respected, who don't acknowledge it, but are influenced by fact. And there's certainly a younger generation of people who perhaps have not fully emerged yet, but are starting to do things who are very influenced by fat. So I do think, you know, I do think it had an effect. And I do think it opened, I mean, there was a conversation, uh, there was an event that Charles chaired, that Maria organised. Competently chaired. On, <laughs> on ornament. Uh, recently, right. which, which I, I actually I, I didn't see myself, but the idea that that is being discussed, you know, is unbelievable. Because when we start, started talking about ornament in about 1995, you know, it wasn't expected <laughs> about, but you know, now people are talking about it seriously, and architects are talking and saying, "Oh, I'm doing ornament." I, I thought we should do an exhibition called like Orthodox and then see if anyone wants to be in that one. <laughs> <laughs> Would you like to be in an exhibition of thoroughly orthodox architects? Just on the um, relationship with the 99%, which you kind of yep. opened this, this bit of the fat love in with, um, 
I'm not just a, an, arch, an architectural critic in Bon Viveurs. I was an architect once at one stage, and I trained in Edinburgh and in the late 70s, early 80s. And high-tech was in its florid ascendancy then, and we all thought we were going to be the next big high-tech geniuses. And I think there's this idea that there's still this auteur model of architectural production. So you get lured in by, you want to be the next Jim Sterling, you want to be the next Norman Foster, as it was in our case. Um, we all went and you know copied details and we were sort of encouraged in, our, in tutors to sort of think that we were going to be, we had this potential in us, you know, deeply within us. So you were unleashed in the world after five years in college and one year sort of doing a year out. And I remember I came to London, my first job in London was, I worked in this dreadful commercial office and I was drawing bricks by hand um, on a sort of schedule, you know, like individually by hand. This is pre-computers. And my heart just kind of like sank into my boots and I thought, Jesus. I'm never going to be the next Norman Foster. And you have, the, I think there's a point in all architects' lives when they realise this, that they are not great. Because the great men have a certain advantages because they're mad, I think, you know, generally. They have this, they're completely driven. And they also have help. They have spouses, they have partners, they have infrastructure, they have a crowd of people around them who sort of coddle them, nurture their tantrums, you know, put them to bed at night, stroke their foreheads and say everything's going to be lovely and this is how they get on and they're never acknowledged without Ster without Wilford there'd be no Sterling without Piano there'd be no Rod there'd be no Rogers without you know Norman and his gang there'd be no Norman so <laughs> I think this it, it's it's but this the, but the idea of this sort of great man this artist this auteur still sucks people into architecture because this is what they think they can be and it's this impotent fantasy of one day I will be Zaha that still prevails. I will be this maverick, you know, this creature that will transform the world. And I think, but you know, for 99% of people, there's that kind of heart-stopping moment when they realise they're never going to make it and they just get on quietly with doing very ordinary things and perhaps in a good way, but maybe in a better way. I don't know. I, mean, I think that's a very interesting comment and it kind of gets to what I was going to ask Maria because and, and in some ways what, what Charles has alluded to already is, is, is whether you can be self-conscious in your kind of maverick nature. And if you are, does that then kind of disavow any kind of actual um, maverick uh, characteristics to what, to what you're doing? I mean, talking about it being you know, a, a mercenary maverick is, is, is very interesting because it's kind of <coughs> buying into that story but doing it for ostensibly all the wrong reasons. Well, I thought what I'd do is be so honest that you'd think <laughs> I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and now I'm layering that up a little bit more. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm very contrary, and I think there's so much opportunity in doing something that nobody else is going to do um, but it's completely limited to a very silly perspective and that's I suppose what I was trying to get across and that the thing is is that so many people were raised to believe that they were special my mom told me I could be whatever I wanted she told me I could be a great dancer I think that in a way, the desire to become a maverick is something that's quite functional and interesting in itself. It's, it's got nothing to do with re genuine mavericks. If there's, if there's even such a thing as a genuine maverick, you know, you're saying that all of these people are kind of sainted after their death. 
um, and that's that's fine. But and actually, the function of the idea of the maverick is the drive to become a maverick, and how that makes people operate differently, and how that makes people sort of look for other things or just piss on everything, which is how I put out the fire. Um, <laughs> I set that one up for myself pretty well. To answer your question, I think the self-conscious desire to be a maverick is absolutely a thing you can do. I'm not sure that that's necessarily what makes you a maverick, but I think that is a thing that is happening all over the world, and that is something that is affecting practice. Is there, I just wonder, because about Cass' point and, and yours, Maria, as well, I mean, they're both really interesting, but I wonder whether they're also slightly, or certainly Cass, whether it's about something else. Because, I mean, the, implicit in the Mavericks exhibition is you're talking, I guess, the architect system, mm. which um, uh, architectural education uh, reproduces constantly, and of course it does, and it's absurd that the model for architectural education is every single person standing up and showing their vision of the world, and that's how practice will be, and of course it isn't. You enter into a kind of big team of people in a compromised situation, lots of other ones. But I think the Mavericks thing is something else. So obviously people will rise to the mm. top of that, and you get people who become hugely successful and famous, Zaha, Richard Rogers, etc., um, the Maverick thing implies a level of failure on some level, doesn't it? That's the thing, that you're, you, you might posthumously be rediscovered as having been doing something interesting and important all along, but there's a sense that in your lifetime at least you might be continuously banging against the kind of shut door or being denied the kind of opportunities that more successful architects get. And I remember when Archigram won the RABA gold medal in probably, I don't know, 2004, something like that. Um, Mark Wigley, an American critic, said that, you know, it's appropriate they should have won it because they're architects, architecture's greatest failures and therefore, in a way, architecture's greatest heroes because we kind of all, in some weird way, aspire <laughs> to fail because it's more authentic and it's more... You know, posthumously, you'll be rescued much more than the people who are famous in their own lifetime. Yeah, I mean, remember that in Friends when Phoebe was saying to Monica and Rachel, like, oh, my God, I would give anything to only be appreciated after I'm dead. And they said to her, Phoebe, you're really, really bad. You're, like, you're not just saying that. No, you suck. You're shit. You're terrible. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Like, oh, to be guys, misunderstood. thank you so much. To be misunderstood is better than be successful. Yeah. Can an architect be part of the establishment and still be a maverick? I think you know once you win the Reba Gold Medal, surely you're you're no longer it's too late for them. Too late. <laughs> I think well, it's a question well of um, in a sense it's not to do with whether you're successful or not. I mean you might look at I mean the success is ninety ninety percent luck anyway. From my point of view, you know, you can talk about oh, do you want to be a superstar or do you want to be seen as some kind of genius and all the rest of it? And, you know, I, I don't think that is the case with me, anyway. I mean, Charles is very big-headed, so he considers himself a genius. And sensitive. Um, <laughs> and yeah. Not he's, to mention competent. <laughs> and sensitive and very big-headed is, is Charles. Um, but Are you hoping to get a job out tonight? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone hiring? But I, oh, my, my only motivation was always to do with, actually, my utter hatred of work. And I just wanted work not to be like work, and and for it to to, to I want to want to be fun, and to at least some of the time, and you know. So in a sense, I I, I see the success as it being, you know, of, of having a laugh, and somehow being paid for it. People paying for for you to do these ridiculous things, and and that's all. You know, that's that's kind of at the end of the day. I think I realised one of the reasons we quit 
fat was because we, we, we'd become successful and we had all of the things that come with having lots of staff and having to get the next job in and running a business and you know I think one day we all thought this, this isn't fun anymore mm. uh, and so I don't think it matters whether you're part of the establishment or not I think it's to do with as an individual are you trying to do something that make you know that, that enhances your life that uh, you know is, is an affirmation of things that you care about and I, I think, interestingly, with regard to education, which I'm obviously um, involved in, I mean, one of the ambitions I have for my students, which I have to say I've failed miserably at in 20 years of teaching, is um, it's not for them to become uh, famous or big stars or anything, but for them to enjoy their careers. And I suppose one of the things I try to do in education is to, is to say... You know, you don't have to be doing window details in, I don't know, Wilkinson Air's office or whatever. There are other ways you can do this. And it's, I know a lot of them won't end up doing, doing that. And on the other hand, I know a lot of them will be quite happy doing window details in Eric Perry's office. But it's to offer that kind of opportunity that you can do something that is fun that you get paid for. And I don't really see what... You know, what can be better than that? Indeed. I think the obvious example is Zaha, because last night she was garlanded with the Royal Gold Medal, so she's made it, she's got the Pritzker, she's got everything, she's collected the set. And when she started in mid-80s, mid-late 80s, um, there was a sense that you hadn't seen anything quite like this before. There was this genuine sense of somebody going rogue, nothing. Mm. I mean, she was a woman, she was an Arab woman, in a profession dominated by, you know, white English men. Um, so... There was this amazing sort of force, kind of un, that you'd never, never seen before. There were the amazing paintings that she did, or she hired people to do. A kind of new way of... Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> there, was a, there, were this, there was this sense of a kind of different way of thinking about architecture, conceiving about architecture, and everyone thought she was nuts. Everyone thought, this will never fly. And then Cardiff happened, and Cardiff was a humiliation. She won this competition design, you know, when I was in Wales, and they all, they garlanded her, and then they said, no, no, we don't want you to do it. And it was, you know, it was really humiliating. And she just kept sort of, you know, pushing on and digging in and getting there and, you know, being, throwing tantrums and throwing things, allegedly. And, <laughs> and in the end, there was a kind of period, she, she got there. She, she transformed the maverickness into a kind of, a way of again a way of seeing and a way of, a way of doing architecture but now there is this because the office has got so huge because it needs to kind of get the jobs in to kind of service you know there's this sense of cruise control and a kind of loss of that original vision that she had that you know impelled her her early years and i think that's i think it's great that she's been recognized long long overdue she's the first woman first woman on her on her own right to be chiseled into the portals of the riba in 2015 you know jesus so, yes, I mean, but now there's a sense of some cruise control, there's nothing new kind of coming out, it's, you know, it's kind of very sort of slightly flaccid, slightly dull and predictable. And that's, Australia, I mean, if you've, that's a trajectory which I think is very common. And I think you guys did the, the right thing because you could have gone on to be the next sort of, you know, prankster, pomo, whatever. 
But you split well, we up. We could have been as big as Zara. Well, you could have. Yes, you, you could have been. You know, <laughs> ten years you time. You could have been. You could have been Sir Sean Griffiths and Sir Charles Holland. You can see it now. Um, <laughs> decent. You know, um, instead you just stuck with competent chair. Yes. <laughs> we handled but, but, but the handled revolvers yeah. to each other. You did the brave thing, and you actually said, "No, we're not having this. We're going to. We've got it to the point that we're. You know, we need to just draw back and not do it anymore." And what the don't do that; they just keep on, and that's mm. probably the worst thing that they can do is to keep on. But you don't have to be a maverick all the time, like throughout your like. There's, there, you know, I was talking about the a, the desire to become a maverick being a certain period, but there's also maybe being a maverick is something that is a temporary situation throughout your life, or. A, something that happens on Tuesday evenings or whatever. It can be something that we could all do at some, you know. Sorry, that was something inappropriate happened in my mind. Um, <laughs> and that's fine. And I think you can, you can be a maverick for a period and then decide, okay, I'm going to take this practice and make that into the establishment. Or you can decide that practice isn't going to work into the establishment. And I don't mean practice as in a uh, firm, but as in a sort of a way of thinking there's, about it. it there's an implied to. kind of willfulness though, isn't it? I mean, I like that idea of part-time maverickness. Or <laughs> yeah. Occasional maverickness. Because, I mean, the whole, the whole sort of ethos of it is it's pretty out of your control. You know, you're just sort of driven in some way against the currents of, you know, as reading the text in the exhibition today, and time after time there's someone who's basically doing something that isn't what most people are doing at that time. So the reason they might be doing that is fairly peculiar and difficult to ascertain. Like, they're obviously pursuing something, and sure, it might be just simply like, okay, I'm going to make this job, which is incredibly procedural, incredibly sort of scripted, involves loads of endlessly boring meetings. I am going to somehow make it fun. <laughs> That's like an enormous act of will um, to do that. And, of course, maybe you just can't keep that will up forever. Cause, but it's sort of interesting that... I think there has to be some level of sort of... I don't know, just sort of drivenness about that desire to yeah, do it yeah, slightly uh, uh, how you want to do it. The apotheosis of that was what we did a building in Cardiff for the BBC. And it, it was, and, you know, this was round about the time I was beginning to think, I cannot look another project manager in the eye. <coughs> I cannot <coughs> attend another pointless design team meeting with 23 consultants sitting around the table, 22 of whom don't say anything. Um, and, um, but the interesting thing about that project was that we were, doing, we, we were commissioned by a, a developer called Igloo to do it, who had leased the building to the BBC, and the BBC had certain um, uh, standards that you had to meet. And they were very worried about the time and everything. So it was all, it was super, super, super project managed, that whole uh, thing. And because of that, what, to our advantage, nobody from the BBC ever looked at the design. <laughs> 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 and, and they only actually found out what they were getting when it was already built. <laughs> At which point, uh, the then chairman of the BBC, Lord Patton, gave a speech saying, this wasn't quite what I was expecting. <laughs> it's a cross between the Dungeness <coughs> Palace and an Ikea store. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you to the Drew Heinz Endowment for Architecture and Turkish Ceramics, which have made this evening possible. But all that remains now is for me to ask you to join me in thanking our panel.
Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.